Hi, listeners. Rachel here with an exciting announcement. We are holding a summer book club bingo game, and there is a card that you can download, a bunch of prompts for different types of books that you can choose to read to play the game along with us. All the instructions and information on how to sign up are at rachelthompson.co slash book club, where you can get your card. And you'll also be able to enter your card to win prizes throughout the summer months. So that's from May to September. We'll be running this book club bingo. I hope you will sign up and uh, read some cool books and be inspired to do some more writerly reading this summer. So all the information is at rachelthompson.co slash book club. Welcome, Luminous Writers, to the Write, Publish, and Shine podcast. I am your host, author and literary magazine editor, Rachel Thompson. This podcast explores how to write and share your brilliant writing with the world. In each episode, we delve into specifics on how to polish and prepare your writing for publication and the journey from emerging writer to published author. In this episode, I speak with my colleague at Room Magazine and fellow editorial collective member, Geffen Samak. Listen to learn about all the different hats Geffen has worn in the literary biz and to understand all of the folks behind the scenes in the lit scene. Geffen has a real 360-degree understanding of the business side of writing and publishing. And as this is the third episode in the mini-series of episodes on the theme of agency and finding agency with your writing, of course, we spend the most time talking about their experience working as a literary agent's assistant at Aiken Alexander in London. We also talk about audiobooks and Geffen's current role as publishing coordinator for audiobooks at Penguin Random House Canada. And those are just a couple of the hats that Geffen has worn that we will be unpacking. And I use our time wisely as they just completed editing the lovely issue of Room called Leyline. And I, at the time of the recording, was in the final, most stressful throes of copy editing the ghost issue for Room and clearly in need of a bit of a pep talk to keep going. You'll hear that in a bit. So here is my interview with Geffen Semach. Welcome, Geffen Simek, to the podcast. I am so pleased to have you here. And it's been a while, I guess, since we've connected. You just finished editing 46.2 Leyliner. It's just been released as the current issue of Room right now. Congratulations. Thank you. I'm so excited. I don't know if you remember, actually, but my first issue of Room when I was a shadow, like in 2015, was one of your issues. Oh, yes. That's probably the last time we really worked closely together, too, because it's such a big collective as well. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to remember which issue that was. Was it Family Secrets? That might have been it. We'll have to go through the archive. They all become a blur to me in the past, although I'm very presently fixated on the one that I'm editing at the moment. (laughs) Well, you've done so many, which is why you're the pro of Room. I'm saying this for the benefit of our listeners, because we know this, but Room rotates between issues with set themes and issues without a set theme. And Leyline, I know, is an issue that was a contest issue, which means that many of the pieces published were contest winners. And so the selection for them was out of your hands as an editor, which is not an experience I've had. I've actually only edited themed issues. You know, I gravitate towards them, but also just that sort of 
how the cards have landed for me. And I know you said in your editor's letter about this, how do you build an issue where predetermined pieces might not go together? And you answered your own question and said flexibility. So I want to hear more about that flexibility and how that worked in bringing together Leyline. That's a really, really good and difficult question. Actually, despite the fact that I answered my own question, you've edited open issues. And to me, I think I thought of it in that way as an open issue in the sense that you don't know what's coming and things aren't necessarily always going to align in the exact same way of creating a cohesive theme. And as judges are choosing the winning pieces, as I think I noted in the editor's letter as well, they're not actually thinking about a cohesive issue. So I think it kind of came down to like three pieces for me, which was personal taste and team taste, which plays a big role. And that's why every issue of Room is so awesome because, you know, we have so many folks on the collective who have such different, wonderful taste. And the next one kind of being the theme that starts to come together towards the beginning as you start accepting those first few pieces. We still had a commission, which was Sid's Dirtmouth. And that was the first piece that we had for the issue. And that's kind of where it started. The piece um, has such a dark humor. It's quite gritty. And the issue gained momentum from there. And I would call it overall a very gritty issue. Oddly, despite me reading a lot of fiction, I am a broad reader generally, but the issue has very little fiction in it, being maybe like three pieces of fiction. And I think that stemmed from the fact that this piece held so much depth kind of about our interactions with death and rebirth and self-knowledge, which then just kind of made us gravitate more towards a lot of the nonfiction pieces and poetry that were submitted. So that was part of the flexibility, was just kind of letting the pieces lead us. But the last thing with Slantest Issues is also the timing. And that's probably the hardest one because the timing of the contest will determine when you are going to be able to fill up your issue, which is a tough one because you don't know how long these pieces are going to be. So you don't know how much space to block off. And so for, you know, an editor of Room, you want to kind of be on top of production going on behind the scenes besides all the creativity, but you don't know how much space you're going to need and whether those pieces are going to fit into what you've been accepting so far. Room editors for contest issues have the right to not publish everything that makes it into the top of the contest. This has nothing to do with the skill or how great these winning pieces are, but just come down to the theme and what is working for the issue and also for space at the end of the day. Because, I mean, I didn't get art, like winning art, until maybe... We were like in the finishing line of the issue. Maybe we had like two weeks left to go. And that's when I got the winning art for the issue. Two weeks before like going to press, really. Yes. And so I was like constantly chasing our our wonderful collective colleagues for the short fiction, for the CNF, everything constantly trying to make sure that I had everything. And so that's probably the biggest thing about being flexible for the contest issue is timing. And, and in terms of readers and submitters to the contest, I think it's great to know that something like that might happen. And if their piece isn't published, it's like all these other reasons happening behind the scene. I did not 
know that I'm adding that to my mental <laughs> library of things to explain to writers because it's hard not to take something like that personally too if that were to happen and think oh they didn't like my piece enough to publish it but as editors we're often swamped there's all these moving parts and not to make it all about me but as you know I'm in the throes of copy editing and gathering everything for our lovely designers so I'm in that first stage of putting things into design. I'm a little bit frazzled and sorry if I appear even tired as we're talking today, because that's definitely contributing to that. But I'm wondering if you have any advice for me to find that flexibility, because it sounds like you really went through it in that issue. I would say over communication, probably with Monica. Monica is amazing at putting together room and putting us putting everything in order and sending revised versions and all of this stuff that's really kind of the messiest period of putting together an issue of room. And so I weekly or even sometimes every other day was sending Monica updates of like, here's a block of text. Here is the updated version of this. I still owe you this. I have not been able to do this and we may not get it. So just kind of that over communication is probably the top thing I would say would benefit any room editor working with other people. Yes. Thank you. I think that's actually a good reminder for me because also when I'm falling behind on things, I get a little bit like, oh, that's kind of embarrassing. I wasn't able to keep my deadline. There's sort of this perfectionist. I guess maybe it's the standard that uh, I'm holding myself to as well. (laughs) Going, no, I think I just need to communicate a bit more that, oh, this is going to happen at this time. And Yeah. And it's so easy to get into your own insular world as an editor of Room, I think where you have all of these dates and these things that you're editing. Then at the same time, you also have, you know, your assistant or assistant editors on the issue and your shadows and all of these other people involved in the process. And you're suddenly like, oh, it's not just me who is putting this together. This is a team effort. And I also want to make sure that the next folks who are coming up on their own issues have the skills and the information in order to do that. I try to let them know maybe not while it's happening, but every mistake that I've made so that they can be aware of the kind of things that can happen as you're putting together an issue, because it's just a lot. I mean, there's just all these things happening and it's like, yeah, I'm going to miss this. I'm going to miss that. And here's how I caught that though. It's like trying to foster a bit of that creativity around problem solving too. That's lovely. I do love this about Room is that we have these different relationships and we come in and fill these different roles. And it's non-hierarchical in that sense as well, too, which I just really value. So thank you for a little micro-coaching on my copy editing (laughs) frazzledness at the moment. (laughs) So as you know, I invited you to the podcast because we're doing a few episodes in a row related to the theme of agency. So I'm going to turn us away from editing for a moment to agency, which is intended as both a conceptual theme, but also We've just heard from two writers in our community who recently were signed with agents. And I know you wear a lot of literary hats and I want to get to more than just the agent hat, but I wanted to make sure it's okay to start with your literary agency experience and that role as well. Absolutely. I like hold such a fondness for agenting and for the agents I've gotten to work with. It can be such an important relationship for authors And I know how important the relationship is for agents with their authors as well. So yeah, happy to talk about it. I want to start really with demystifying the role itself. 
And in composing this question, I thought maybe it's not totally demystifiable because maybe there's not a very specific definition for it. But can you describe, I guess, what you understand an agent's role is and maybe even how you've seen it vary as well? I mean, in talking about myself wearing a lot of hats in my career, I think that agents wear so many hats. I think that there's a certainly a misconception, but kind of a specified way that people think about agenting as an heuristic within publishing. And that's one aspect to it. But the agent is so many things. They are your first cheerleader, in a sense. They are your career manager. They are a therapist and a friend. They are an advice giver. They are, you know, a creative chalkboard. There's so many things and it's very hard to define exactly what an agent is, especially when I was, you know, assisting a really, really brilliant agent that I was lucky enough to work with, Claire Alexander of Aitken Alexander. And I would say, you know, well, I work at a literary agency and what's that? And most people don't know that much about publishing. And so, you know, the first thing you kind of go to is, well, you know, that actors or football players have agents that help them, you know, progress their careers and make sure that they're getting paid, that they are secure in their roles and all these sorts of things. And that's kind of how I would explain it to people, but it's so much more and something that can really last a lifetime. Yeah. It seems like fundamental to it, or certainly from the writers I've spoken to who have agents, they're like, my agent got me a lot more money for the book than I ever would have asked for, because that's the thing that they understand very well is the money side of the business. Yes, they do. It comes down to so many things of of understanding the marketplace, of being able to match make where a book fits and what editor it should be with. And also kind of what different publishers have to work with or the comp titles that are going to help determine where we want to situate a book in the marketplace. And therefore, what we hope or, and ideally it exceeds our expectations, um, but what we hope that the book is going to earn back. We don't want a situation where an author has to pay back any money. So it's a very complicated spot and having a great agent can help you make more money and help you gain the agency to make sure that your book is getting support in-house at a publisher by placing it correctly. That's a really good point. It's like navigating all sides of the industry. So not just a shark out there to get the best pay, but going, no, what's honestly how much this book can make in this market? Yes. I mean, that's not to say, you know, that any books are better than other books, but it's still a business. And so that part, it can be very helpful to have an agent there. You don't have to have an agent, but it can be very helpful to have one. And that's, I think, something I wanted to ask you about too, because certainly, I mean, I have published a book as a poet in Canada. It's really rare for poets to have agents, although my friend Ellen Chang Richardson, who is my assistant editor on the issue, is a poet with an agent, which I'm very happy for them. But I guess what I'm trying to say is it's like, it's not every case where you need an agent or even where that would be appropriate. Can you just share a little bit of what you would advise, I guess, writers who are considering looking for an agent and maybe some of the important things that they should know before setting out, I guess, starting with that question of, do I need an agent? That's a hard one. As someone who's worked in agenting and the fondness I hold for it, I think it's great to have an agent. When you have the right agent, when you have that great relationship, it's a really, really 
beautiful and supportive relationship and can just really help a career bloom and a person bloom when you feel like you are supported by somebody else who believes in you. You don't have to have an agent. I have seen people not have agents. As we know, the big five publishers, it can be a lot harder to get published by them specifically without an agent. And that can come down to not just the fact that lots of these publishers and the imprints don't accept unsolicited manuscripts, but also relationships within publishing. And part of an agent's job is to have good relationships with all the other folks in publishing, whether it is editors or publishers, foreign rights folks, scouts, people in film looking to acquire film rights. So there's a lot of things that agents have developed relationships in order to help a career and a book reach as broad an audience as possible. It's really good to think about all those things. I mean, sometimes it's just hard to know exactly where to position your book. I mean, maybe for those folks who aren't sure, maybe it's like, okay, we'll try the agent route and see what kind of feedback you receive. Absolutely. Would you say that's good advice? (laughs) I think it is good advice. One thing to also consider before, you know, reaching out to agents is the fact that your agent will believe in you and support you. Part of that belief is also the fact that they believe that they can place the book at a publisher and they do get money out of your book. So some folks choose not to have an agent because they will take, you know, usually 15 to 20% of what you're getting. And that isn't necessarily a huge amount, but they are being paid for the work that they're doing. So that's one thing to consider. Another thing to consider is I see a lot of authors just throw everything at the wall and seeing what sticks when it comes to finding an agent. And I can see why folks would do that. It's hard to find a place when there are so many people out there writing and querying, but finding an agent is matchmaking as an author trying to find the right person for them. And that does include a lot of research. That means finding someone whose books on their writers on their list reflect the kind of writer that you are and the kind of sentimentality that you have because you want someone who gets you. And that is going to make all the difference too, is finding the right comp titles for the kind of author you are and being authentic when you are querying an agent, noting what they're interested in, like kind of where their career is headed as well as where yours is headed. Yeah, that speaks to me of the importance of research. So it's like really putting in that legwork rather than sending things out scattershot, which probably seems maybe faster just to send to anywhere, but also it's probably going to pay off in dividends if you actually spend the time really looking into the correct person who's going to be that match for you. Exactly. I'm interrupting my chat with Gepin Samach, my colleague at Room, to let you know that it was when I started editing with Room magazine that I first conceived of my Lit Mag Love course. I had been submitting and publishing with Lit Mags for a few years when I joined the collective. And as soon as I started reading submissions and working with other editors there, I could see that there was so much I had misunderstood about how Lit Mags work. Even now, Seven years later in this era of greater transparency, I think there's still a big gap between what writers think is going on at LitMags and what is actually happening. I put all that knowledge to bridge that gap into the LitMag Love course, 
And then I added so much more that helps you explore who you are as a writer, get focused in your strategy to submit to journals, and not to mention motivated to actually do it. So if you've benefited from what you've learned in this or other episodes of my podcast, I think you'd get a lot out of this course that is all about publishing in journals. The Lit Mag Love course will help you get a big yes for your writing from a literary journal. The five-week course normally runs twice per year, but this year I had to adjust my schedule. So this is the only time it will be offered in 2023 and it starts later this month. The course comes out with lots of support and feedback from a warm cohort of writers. Seriously, I'm always blown away by the caring and thoughtful interactions that happen in each session. You can learn all about the Lit Mag Love course, find out what writers say about working with me, and then sign up at rachelthompson.co slash litmaglove. We start very soon, and I hope to see you in this session. I know your work has spanned countries and different sides of publishing. You've been at top literary and foreign rights agencies, at independent and big publishers, as well as magazines, including Room. Can you tell us more about your other literary hats and what you enjoy about each? Well, technically, I started off more in literary magazines with Room. I've been with Room since about 2016. And it's just such a wonderful, wonderful magazine. Folks are so passionate and creative and kind. And it's been around for such a long time. And it's wonderful to see how it continues to evolve and hit the landscape of, you know, the authors that it's publishing or from artists that it's publishing. I love the literary magazine landscape for, so I think my last issue was 43.4 or so, which was Twine. And I remember publishing a really fantastic story that stayed with me. And then seeing that author publish another short story recently in Hazlitt and just really seeing their growth as an author. And I think magazines are such an important place for writers to find their community and editors as well, to find their community and to receive the space and the autonomy to grow and be seen. That's really wonderful to me. And I'm so in love with Lit Mags and will continue to be. I started my career in traditional publishing in London at Profile Books, which is an independent publisher. And I learned a lot there as an intern about the business of publishing and creating longevity for an independent publisher. And Profile is really, really exceptional in that. From there, I went into foreign rights also as an intern. And I think I learned a lot about relationships there, you know, foreign rights. Everybody there is so, so, so cool at Andrew Nuremberg. And they all speak multiple languages and they know everybody and they travel a lot but they also just love reading. And I don't know how they accomplish so much. They read so many things. So I learned a lot there about landscapes in different countries, marketplaces in different countries and relationships. And that's actually how I found my job at Aiken Alexander was at the London Book Fair, where I met somebody and that led to my role as Sarah Alexander's assistant of Aiken Alexander. And agenting, I think, was somewhere that. I was able to kind of find who I was a lot more so as a reader and as someone working in publishing and just allow myself to be who I am, which is very social, a voracious reader of kind of everything. 
And I'm, you know, kind of not ashamed to say that I'm a reader of everything. I think that there's a pressure in publishing these days to really narrow down exactly who you are as a reader. And I'm broad and I, I love that about myself. And I think it's allowed me to see publishing as a bigger picture of not just solely one genre or one type of publishing, which I think has been a real boon to my career generally. And also just agenting, I, I really love for the relationships. I had just the real luck and joy to work with some truly, truly lovely authors while working under Claire, who I developed really special friendships with from a creative place and also from you know a personal place. And receiving postcards from them and being able to work on their work with them is just something that I hold so, so dear and so, so cool to have. Now, you know, I spent some time at Doubleday at Penguin Random House Canada, where, you know, I kind of got my first taste of big publishing. And that was an eye-opener. And then I found myself in audiobooks, where I am currently. And I think audio is a really, really wonderful space. We have issues with production these days, with paper, with all sorts of things. We don't have those issues with audio. And from, you know, standpoint of accessibility, I think audio is a really cool space to meet all kinds of readers. And I love that you can also do it on the move, which is fun because I spent most of my life walking with a book in front of my face and bumping into everything. Yes, I've done that myself. And also um, really enjoying listening to books lately, in particular, for some reason, craft books. We read a lot of craft books in our community and I just found it's nice to hear it and be able to move around and somehow I process the ideas a bit better, you know, pause and jot notes when I need to, but that's really exciting. And it's great just to hear that trajectory and all the different places where you fit into the different roles in the literary industry and also the relationships and the ways that those kind of vary. I love your eclecticism too. I think that's just really a lovely thing to hear. And it almost feels like Definitely the ethos that you bring to room and then is part of what room is about too, is like this sense of belonging to feels so lovely compared to, oh no, I only read this, right? I'm only looking for this narrow, thin slice of the pie when the pie is so delicious all around. <laughs> why not try it? Why not try all of it? <laughs> Eat all the pie. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> or have cake if you don't like pie too. <laughs> I was going to ask you what are the more satisfying experiences, but I think you've really covered a lot of that too. Picturing you at that book fair, I don't know, it just feels in itself that there's a whole story that you've told us about your journey through all these different places and spaces and the the foreign rights folks who are speaking all these different languages. I think it's great to really humanize all these different characters too that are involved in the industry and understand there are all these different corners, these different moving parts. Thank you for taking us on that journey through many of them. So I've mentioned, and I'll say it again, our theme is agency. So one of the things that agency, in terms of the conceptual term, is that it requires intentionality and self-knowledge and reflection. And so I'm just wondering, what does agency mean to you, Gavin? I think the word intentionality comes to mind. Sometimes it can feel like not enough progress is being made or things are moving too slowly to 
feel the successes or the fruits of all of our labor. And I think when we're able to slow down and take note of the steps that we've taken and see the kind of trajectory of our growth, I think that that can kind of lead to a sort of feeling of agency that we're, you know, where we're supposed to be right now. And that doesn't mean that it's forever. And I think agency is, you know, kind of where we meet a lot of hope, but also the obstacles as well. And overcoming those obstacles or sometimes letting them, not letting them take us down, but being knocked over by them is I think where we need our agency, if that all makes sense. That really does. Yeah, I'm thinking it's sort of like agency is related to resiliency too, that idea of getting back up after getting knocked down too. Thinking about that, I guess, those knocks, when have you felt the most agency in your life, in your writing life and the least? I think I felt the most agency, I think sometimes wrongly and sometimes correctly. And I think where I've been able to identify where I have actually had agency is where I have found progression in my writing and in my career and life generally. I think it can be very easy to get caught up in the momentum of other people and what other people want. That said, I think I've also found the most agency when I have a group around me and a community around me to collaborate with. And I think that that has helped me grow is just not being my own soundboard. There's a little paradox in there a bit too. It's like agency also requires outside takes or that sounding board of trust. I assume really trusted people in your community. Absolutely. Trust is a big one. So I want to thank you so much for sharing your story and taking us on that journey through the different literary roles, Geffen. I have a final round for people to finish some sentences. So if you're game, I'd like to do it with you. So the first sentence starts, being a writer is... It's so hard not to be like cheesy, (laughs) you know, maybe I just need to lean into the cheese and just, you know, say like writing is hard. There's no other way to write besides writing. And that can be lonely and it can be devastating and it can be joyful, but I would say it's, it's hard. Rejection for a writer means? Rejection for a writer means a time of grief and a time of birth. And then finally, writing community is? Writing community is a gift. I don't normally refer to the video in these interviews, but there's like a big smile that came on your face when you talked about writing community. So I feel like I need to mention that because um, it's just lovely. And I guess I'm seeing my own smile in that because I just love writing community so much as well. And thank you for being part of my extended writing community through Room as well, Kevin. Well, thank you for bringing me into it and bringing me into your community and having me on the podcast. It's so fun to talk about publishing and writing. And this is just such a joy. Thank you again. So that was Geffen Semach, my colleague, who, by the way, built the best audio for it just for our conversation. I'm really grateful to them for being on the pod and for coming in with such enthusiasm. Geffen is an editor at Room Magazine, as I mentioned, and like I am, but that is just one of many, many literary hats they have worn. So I hope you liked learning about all those different environments and roles and that it gave insights into the biz side of writing, publishing, and shining. So particularly on the publishing side of the biz. 
The Lit Mag Love course will help you get a big yes for your writing from a Lit Mag you love. Learn more about the course and sign up at rachelthompson.co slash litmaglove. The Write, Publish, and Shine podcast is brought to you by me, Rachel Thompson. Sound editing is done by Adam Linder of Bespoken Podcasting. And all of our episodes have transcripts. And in the past several months of episodes, these have been transcribed diligently by Dia Jaffrey. You can learn more about the work I do to help writers write, publish, and shine at rachelthompson.co. When you're there, sign up for my writerly love letters sent every week just about and filled with support for your writing practice. If this episode encouraged you to explore more of the publishing side of the literary world, I would love to hear all about it. You can reach me at hello at rachelthompson.co. I am still off of social media. It's become a bit of a permanent hiatus, so I don't expect to be back there anytime soon. And you can tell other luminous writers about this episode. You can do this by sending them to the podcast at rachelthompson.co slash podcast or tell them to search for Write, Publish, and Shine wherever they get their podcasts. Thank you for listening. I encourage you to keep writing with agency and luminously. My name is Lefen Semach, and I'm coming to you from Vancouver, located on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territory of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. And my pronouns are she, they. And I am a guest in the South Sinai, Egypt, on lands historically and presently occupied by the El Muzina Bedouin. Join our game of book club bingo this summer. Learn more and sign up at rachelthompson.co slash book club.